This is the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio on the AHP Digital Radio Network. Visit us at australianhuntingpodcast.com.au. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Here's the host of the show, Jason Selms. Welcome back to the Australian Hunting Podcast, hunting, shooting and fishing radio here on the AHP Digital Radio Network. On today's show, we're going to be talking to Johnny Ellsmore. Uh, He hails from the UK and he has a YouTube channel called Point of Impact TV. Now, if you like medium to long range shooting, you're going to love Johnny's channel. He's got just on about... 12,000 subscribers on YouTube. There's certain species that he hunts over there that we hunt in Australia too, such as the humble rabbit, and he uses different firearms, such as he's 22, he's got a 17 HMR, he's also got a 17 Hornet, which I do want to ask him about as well. Uh, just recently, he got a 204, and I haven't seen him if he's got his ticker 243 light anymore so i will ask him about that as well and he's also got a 6.5 by 55 which he shoots deer with we're going to talk hunting in the uk we're going to talk long and medium range varminting we're going to talk suppressors we're going to talk game you can hunt in the uk and of course i just wanted to thank all my patreon supporters that support me on the show now we're trying something new pretty much guys on this show what i used to do is uh, record the show on one of my recorders uh, and then go in and add in all the intros and all my advertisements after the show. So it was taking a little bit of time. So thanks to uh, all the Patreon supporters, I ended up purchasing basically an all-in-one inclusive mixing desk. So I want to thank you guys. So now, at least if someone's going to be overseas or someone's not going to be here with me in the studio, uh, when I'm actually playing sounds and interviews and stuff like that, I can cut, I can pause, and the person on the other end of the phone is also going to be hearing that audio too, which is absolutely fantastic. So hopefully this cuts out a lot of editing. Of course, I'm going to have to go in, put on the computer, clean up a few things, render it out and upload it but that's going to be pretty easy compared to what I was doing before it wasn't too hard before but I think this is really just going to step up the game as you guys know I get podcasts out every fortnight uh, 6 p.m. on a Monday, which is my plan. If you listen to this show too, I just interviewed Tom Frame, uh, who was the author of Gun Control, What Australia Got Right and Wrong. So we did that about three or four days ago, probably by the time you're listening, this will be a few weeks ago. And uh, it was quite an interesting discussion. We are going to follow up in part two uh, on the 26th of September. So I'm not sure if I'm actually going to be releasing part one uh, and a part two, possibly even a part three. Uh, We were about uh, about an hour and 10 minutes in, and Tom unfortunately had prior commitments, so he did have to go somewhere. That's why we're following up for a part two. And guys, really, you don't want to miss that podcast, honestly. Um, Very interesting, uh, some good, some bad. Uh, All I can say is have a listen and let me know what you think uh, when those interviews come out with Tom Frame. Like I said, I haven't said it on whether I'm going to release it all as one or a part one and a part two possibly even a part three just depending on how long the conversation goes for so enough talking i think we should uh bring on today's guest johnny ellsmore johnny ellsmore welcome to ahp mate thanks for coming on representing point of impact tv all the way from northern england thanks a lot thanks a lot for having me no worries man first off i want to find out who you are man tell us about yourself what do you do um yeah just everything about your history i guess growing up well, um, I'm a 31-year-old science teacher from uh, like the north of England, a place called Yorkshire, and um, got into 
shooting at a very young age. Well, not, well, not young compared to some of these American guys that are doing it as soon as they can walk. But I got an air rifle when I was about 10, 11 years old. And before that, I've been making like bows and arrows with sticks and stuff. I've always been obsessed with anything with projectiles, I suppose, really. And then um, I uh, sort of left it behind a little bit while I was at university and uh, picked it up again shortly after that, getting some really high-tech air rifles that could uh, shoot out to like 60 yards or so within the the legal limit before you have to get a license in the UK. And then I got my firearms license a couple of years after, and I've never looked back since, really. Do a lot of um, rabbit control, mostly. Um, Shoot other vermin and pest species, like pest birds and stuff. And then as often as I can, I try and get out and shooting deer as well. So a bit of everything, really. Yeah, how did you get into it? Was it a a family tradition? Did your dad hunt? Was it mum? Was it brother? There's always that seemed to be one really telltale point in life, and there was one for me too where I went over to the States and I was – I had my license for a while, but I went dove hunting in um, Texas, and then literally, man, ever since then – I've just loved hunting and it really hooked me back into it. And, you know, like you, I love my rabbit shooting. So what was that point? What was that uh, uh, place in your life where you thought, yep, after university, I really want to get back into this. I just love this. Well, I just kind of, I think it was like almost inbuilt into me. I'm almost a bit of a believer that there's such a thing as like a caveman gene or something because I, before, before I ever went fishing, I, I knew I wanted to go fishing. Before, before I ever did any kind of shooting, I, I just knew that I wanted to do it. And nobody in my immediate family or nobody I didn't really any influence from did anything like that. Um, my uncles, it turns out, um, my mum's brothers, who were like quite a bit older than her, who I didn't spend a lot of time with other than like going around to their house for like a cup of tea or whatever. Um, it turns out that they used to be really into it. And when they were younger, my my dad's really not into shooting or hunting or anything. He's never even been out with me. So um, I've not come from like a shooting family at all. It's just something that I just, it was just buried deep in my soul or something. That sounds a bit corny, but, you know, I just knew that I wanted to do it. And I think it stems from probably my um, sort of appreciation for nature, really. Like, I've always been really into David Attenborough programs from a very young age. And I think, you know, my sort of appreciation for nature and fascination with nature has got me into hunting and fishing, really. It's interesting, isn't it? I remember when I, I think I was about 18, because that's when we can get a license over here in Australia. And I remember <laughs> telling my family, my mum for the first time that, you know, I wanted to get into firearms. She's like, I'm not having any guns in the house. This is ridiculous. <laughs> and then I ended up just bringing, um, I think it was a gun safe. But And uh, what did I buy my first one? It was a Diana Model 36 Springer air rifle. And, you know, I thought I was cool with my uh, <laughs> my little air rifle. But uh, what did you, were you living at home when you first got into shooting? And if you had to store guns at home, what were your, what were your mum and dad like? Well, you know, were they cool with it? Yeah, so about um, it about uh, I just finished my um, my uh, probationary year as a teacher, and I'd moved back to my hometown, so I was living with my parents, and uh, they were quite relaxed about it, really. I think because my uh, mum's brother um, has got has got loads of guns and stuff, and it was never really much of an issue for him. I suppose uh, only time that they ever began to have a problem with it was uh, when we got um, we got broken into at one point, like specifically to steal firearms. So that became like, you know, it became a point of uh, contention when it started being a bit of a security threat, really. 
So what happened with that? Did they find the guns? Did they steal everything? What happened with that situation? So I, I was out at the time. I'd, I'd come home and I'd gone out with two rifles to zero one of them and shoot some rabbits with the other. And um, I got a phone call from my mum while I were out and she's like, uh, all your guns have been stolen. And I'm thinking, what? Is she joking? Have I left the door open? And she tried to tell me that I'm you know, an idiot and I've left the door open or something. And... Um, and she said she's serious, and she sounded quite serious. So I uh, went straight home, and um, the safe were downstairs on the floor. They'd managed to lever it off the wall. It had been bolted to the wall. The wall wasn't a very good wall, really, obviously. And um, they'd managed to crowbar it open somehow. And uh, they'd got made off with um, three shotguns and, and three rifles. So not good, really. Yeah, that would have been a bad situation. Did they end up catching up with them? Did they get them back or they find the people or no? Well, luckily, um, these people had stolen the guns in a stolen car. So the car was pursued on the on, on the basis that it was reported stolen very shortly after they'd sort of taken the guns. And they were followed until they sort of like went into a supermarket car park or something and, and bailed out and left the car with the guns in. But... Um, the, the British police, being the British police, um, kept hold of them for about three months, and then eventually I got them back. Nice. And they weren't damaged. <laughs> Hopefully they kept them in the gum bags for you. <laughs> oh, they were very, very considerate thieves. They took um, they took a duvet, like a you know bed duvet, and um, they sort of like put one in, rolled it up a little bit, put another one in, rolled it up a little bit. It was like um, it was like somebody were moving house and wanted to look after the guns. They did a really good job of taking care of them for me. Unbelievable. <laughs> they might have even taken better care of them than you. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Mate, tell us about... So, have so I'm going to say, so following that, obviously upgraded security quite a lot, got some new windows and doors fitted that were quite tough and stuff. And I've got a safe now that I don't think anybody could get into very quickly unless they had a lot of power tools. It's ridiculous, this thing. It's actually, I think that they're an Australian company, actually. They're called um, what, Lockaway, is it? Lockaway Gun Safe. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yep. The ones that the door slides over, they're absolutely awesome. It's an absolute unit, is this thing. Yeah. I'd, 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 uh, I'd be happy to give my guns away to anybody who could break into that fairly easily. Yeah, no, I've heard it's, I've heard it's a, a pretty good design. Uh, talking about that, have you made any good shooting friends uh, from hunting and shooting scene? I think I've seen a couple of friends of yours on, on your videos. Elliot, I think, has been one of them, if I've got that name correct. Uh, yeah. how, how have you made friends in the shooting community? Is it by going out, going to the range? Are these local you know, friends in your area that are also hunters and shooters? If so, how did you, how did you find other hunters and shooters to hunt with? Well, through the social media world, really, has been the main way that I've uh, met different people. Like Elliot, for example, he had his own YouTube channel. And um, so, so I, uh, I sort of knew of him from there. And he popped up on one of my Facebook groups. And we were talking about load testing. And it might have been a picture of some loads that I'd, uh, I'd sort of put together to do some testing. And he said, oh, we're doing some testing as well. It's a shame that that we didn't live closer, I could go out together. And then it turns out that the land that he actually shoots on is kind of in the middle of where we both live. He lives about 60 miles away, and uh, this land's about 35 miles from him, 25 miles from me. So it was almost like a good meeting point, really. And we met up one day, had a really good time and a laugh, found out we had quite a lot in common in terms of the shooting that we did, and uh, got along really well. 
I've been shooting for about three years now. We used to go every weekend, but lately fishing's been getting in the way a little bit. It's interesting. I always talk to a lot of people about that, about you know how far away is their shooting. Like sometimes for me, it could be up to, which is quite annoying, so I don't get to shoot as much as definitely I'd like to. But you know, it's about two hours for me before I can even think yeah. about pulling a firearm out. I mean, I can go to the range, which is, you know, if I want to shoot clay targets or sporting clays or, or I want to go to like a 50-meter range, which is like, you know, 60-yard range, that's about 20 minutes away, 15 or 20 minutes. But, I mean, to get some actual serious hunting, you know, probably a couple of hours. So you're probably lucky you've got yeah. access to places that are, are quite close for you to be able to hunt. Yeah, I've got quite a few places nearby for rabbits and, and stuff. But um, if I want to go do any kind of deer hunting or anything, it's usually usually head to Scotland, really. I've got a good friend up in Scotland who I go out um, deer hunting with called Bob. And um, we go out in uh, like rural Perthshire. There's like not a lot happening up there apart from deer. And it's really charming. And then the furthest place I ever travel to go hunting is uh, Montana in the States. I've got a really good friend over there called Ty that I met through um, the Facebook group. He helps me manage it. And, um, you know, like I just said one day, oh, it'd be great to go out hunting in Montana sometime. And he says, pack your bags and get over here. So, you know, I just, uh, just went one day and I must have been to Montana now six or seven times to shoot gophers mostly. I know. So, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to travel to do my shooting. It's amazing the type of hunting you can do in. It's so interesting, isn't it? Like when I talk to different people from around the world, yourself, Americans, I've interviewed people in South Africa. I think I've done Charlie Jacoby from Field Sports Britain. Um, yeah, done a lot of different people. But, you know, it's amazing all the different game you can get overseas. But, you know, the one really good thing is, you know, hunting is, and shooting is sort of universal. It doesn't matter, you know, what country you live in. Yeah, I think we're, we're all pretty hooked up. We were all pretty obsessed with it. Uh, tell us about, I want to find out, uh, what's the general condition, shooting conditions like in the United Kingdom? I know it probably, my mum just went over there for about a three-month holiday through Ireland, Scotland, England. She always wanted to go there, so she went over there. You know, she's a bit older, obviously. Um, what's the general shooting conditions? Cold? Does it snow where you are? What's the, what are you sort of dealing with um, in regards well, to weather over there? It's um, we've got what's called a temperate climate, really. So it never really gets very hot, and it never really gets very cold either. Really, um, it gets uh, it gets a bit colder than I think you get in Australia. Really, we do get um, sub-zero temperatures in terms of you know degrees Celsius. Um, it gets down to about at the most, it gets down to about minus fifteen. Very rarely, typical winter gets down to about minus minus five, minus six at times. But most of the time, I'd say our average temperature is about 15 degrees Celsius. I think it's supposed to be a little bit more than that today, maybe 17 degrees Celsius, sort of tail end of the summer. In summer, we go up to about 30 degrees Celsius. If it gets above 30 degrees Celsius, everybody starts freaking out. It's a heat wave and, you know, we're going to have droughts and all this sort of stuff. So, you know, we don't really ever get extremes of temperature here, but it rains quite a lot which is a bit inconvenient. It can be quite muddy at times. Um, it's sort of, um, overall, we don't really have any time when you can't really go hunt something, though. There's always something that you could go out and hunt, so it's not too bad. seems uh, to be that all the deer seasons run through winter, so they don't do too badly. At least you actually get, uh, you know, like rains over there. I mean, we're currently going through a drought so you know rabbits are very thin on the ground and you know i guess with a lot of rain you probably do get a lot of feed on the ground for rabbits over there 
Yeah, but too much of it seems to be a problem because it seems to flood the burrows and stuff. And if we get any like um, sort of extremes of weather, if you get any big fluctuations one year, it seems to have a real impact on the rabbit numbers. Like we had um, a storm come down from Russia last year called the Beast from the East. Uh, people in Montana would <laughs> laugh at it, really. Um, we had we had about, I don't know, 8, 12 inches of snow maybe and temperatures down to about minus 8 where I live. And um, it was uh, it seems to have had a bit of an impact on the rabbit numbers. And the summer for that, we'd had uh, quite a lot of drought. Like, it's the greenest place ever where I live. Everybody comments on my photos about how green it is. And everywhere went, like, straw-coloured. You know, it was really quite, quite a drought, drought-ridden drought summer, followed by, like, a, an extreme winter by our standards. So I don't think that's done too much for the rabbit numbers. Absolutely. And we're going to talk about what we're going, what you can hunt over there in just a few minutes. So we're just going to go to an ad break, and we'll be right back. Renowned for their strength, reliability and attention to detail, Moroku shotguns are the perfect example of what a sporting shotgun should be. Moroku have been producing quality products for over a century and sold in Australia since 1963. Each Moroku shotgun is crafted with precision, from the MK Trap and sporting models to the all-round best-selling field shotgun, the MK70. Visit morokushotguns.com.au for more details and stockists. All right, Johnny, mate, tell us what you can actually hunt over in the UK. Give us a list of sort of your core species. Well, I suppose if we go from, like, small to large, um, in the in the sort of vermin department, in terms of the mammals, we've got um, rats. Rats are very popular to hunt in barns and stuff with air rifles at close range, usually with night vision. And that's really good fun. It's even more fun with a 17 HMR or something to blow them two foot in the air. Um, yeah. Then we've got um, we've got rabbits, squirrels. Um, there's plenty of those about um, in the birds department. It's all been a bit crazy lately because a guy called Chris Packham, you may have heard of his yeah. sort of name is mud in the hunting community. <laughs> He's trying to He's, be a uh, pigeon hunter. Pilot. He tried to stop pigeon hunting, crows, shooting crows, magpies, and a few other things. He um, he was challenging them on the basis of that people don't um, follow the regulations properly and stuff. And it's like, you know, he needs to get a grip. He needs to be protecting species that that are in danger. And the crows and stuff that he would try to protect, they're, they're causing a lot of problems for other bird species that are sort of threatened, eating their eggs and things and their chicks. So we shoot a lot of birds. We shoot um, the uh, wood pigeon. Um, and that's uh, pretty good for, uh, for sport with the shotguns and, Pretty good eating. We shoot crows, magpies, various other members of the crow family. Um, well, our magpies, when I say magpies to Australians, sometimes they get a little bit upset because it's not legal for magpies in your neck of the woods, is it? No, but, the, um, the only totally time we get uh, magpies is when basically, you know, they're swooping throughout parts of the year. I think it's coming up this time of the year, actually. they, I think they're defending the nest. So if you're riding past on your bike or walking down, they try, try and attack you from behind by swooping down and pecking you on the head and try and take your eyes out. So they're pretty crazy, the old, uh, the old magpie. Yeah, um, it sounds like yours need shooting as well, but um, ours are a totally different species, and they get a lot of Aussie guys going, what are you doing? You can't shoot magpies. But, you know, when you're looking at common names of animals, a lot of them overlap uh, different species over the world. You know, like if you... But we're not going to all go around using the scientific names, are we? So, um, 
Yeah, we've got a lot of birds that we hunt, mostly for preventing problems in terms of like uh, agriculture and uh, protecting um, songbirds. So we shoot the the uh, pigeons to protect crops because they absolutely hammer like wheat crops and stuff. We shoot the um, crows and uh, magpies and other birds like that for crop protection in part, but a lot of it's about protecting wildlife and protecting livestock because some of these crows will they'll, they'll go and peck out lambs' eyes as soon as they're born and things like that, so they can be pretty unpleasant. And then if we go to sort of larger things, we hunt foxes like you guys do over in Oz, and um, they're a bit of a menace in this country, taking chickens, taking young lambs, because you know, it's, it's a very small sort of compact place. And we have, you know, a lot of um, human habited area, but the rest of the area is pretty much farmland or somewhere where people are going to be rearing like game birds. So foxes are a real menace from that point of view, and they tend to like live on the on the fringes of cities and sometimes in cities. So foxes are a bit of a menace in this country at the moment. If we go up in size from them, I'd say next thing's probably uh, muntjac deer, which are like very small deer that originate in Asia. Do you guys have any of those in Australia? It's it's interesting. I've, no, we don't have the muntjac. We've got a small deer. You might want to look at on uh, when you when we finish the podcast called a hog deer, H O G, and they're yeah. <laughs> I think it must be like a muntjac because when I saw your muntjac deer, I'm like, this is not a deer. This is like a large rat. It's not even a deer. <laughs> yeah, they're not very big at all. They're not much bigger than a fox. I'd say I've never personally hunted them, but. They look like good fun to hunt. They're not the kind of deer that stand still. They're just kind of like moving around in the undergrowth, like badgers or something. <laughs> Beyond that, we've, we've got um, got a few other small species. We've got Chinese water deer, and they're, they're not much bigger than Munjak, I don't believe. And then we've got um, roe deer. Beyond that, they're quite common all over the country. But these Chinese water deer and Munjak are quite concentrated down in the south of England. Um, the roe deer are about, about as big as a sort of medium to large sized dog with longer legs I'd say and uh, they're pretty good eating I've hunted them before beyond them we've got um, fallow deer and which you guys have over in Oz don't you yeah and, absolutely uh, yep. seeker do you guys have seeker as well do we have no I don't, th- I don't think we do I don't think we do no a bit like a red but like smaller antlers and a bit smaller and darker colour they're from Japan originally I believe we've got all- we collect deer from all over the world in this country. We've only got two native species. And then um, beyond that, we've got so fallow and then seeker, which are a bit like red deer. We've got, and then we've got red deer are our biggest deer. And uh, we've got some pretty epic red deer hunting up in Scotland. It's pretty wild and crazy. The, the, the deer aren't so much either the best trophies in the country. You'd have to go down south where it's a bit warmer and more temperate for that. But it's the most wild, most exhilarating hunting you can you can get into if you can handle it fitness wise. It's quite it's quite tough. Yeah, I've just had so, a look uh, on but, uh, on Google here while we're talking, and it says actually that uh, seeker deer are apparently being farmed in Victoria, which is my neighbouring state. But there's no evidence of wild seeker deer population in Victoria. I don't know. Good question. I'm not even sure if they know. We've got um, yeah, fallow deer, probably like you do. We've got uh, samba, which is a very very big deer. Red deer, which are big too. Cheetal deer, rusa deer, uh, hog deer, which is that small little one. Uh, yeah, so we've got quite a large, um, good game population of deer in this country. But you, I guess you just got to find them and you know get success. You might have more deer than we've got almost. I think Australia 
it's one of those it's one of those countries uh, where so many species have been introduced by rich people who live over there that just want to like collect animals and hunt different animals that it's just become a real myriad of different species, hasn't it? Yeah, I notice also too when I'm watching, uh, he's got a really good channel too. Scott is it the Scott Ree Project where he talks about breaking down oh, yeah. deer and everything like that. And when he's got a deer on the bench, I thought that looks like a dog. It's not even a deer. It's way too small to be a deer. <laughs> but, you know, I guess it depends on the species of where you come from. All species are different, you know, depending on what continent you come from. Another thing that we can hunt, I forgot to mention, is uh, the wild boar. So we, we, we used to have wild boar um, native to this country and they all got wiped out probably through overhunting. Um, or maybe protection of farmers' crops and stuff. And then they reintroduced some accidentally by farming them and they all broke out and they're starting to be on the rise now. It'd be nice if a few of them showed up in my neighbourhood. It'd be nice to go hunt some bacon. I know it's uh, it's man. I just love I love hunting deer. I like hunting everything. That's a, that's my problem, Johnny. It's uh, just yeah. If it's there, I like to hunt. I like the taste of game meat. I like rabbit hunting, long range shooting, like you. I never thought I'd like the long range shooting stuff, but ever since I've got into it, hitting things at longer ranges just seems to be um, you know an awesome pastime. So what we're going to do, I'm going to give people a bit of an audio taste. You might say I know, I know they're not going to be able to uh, see it. But I'm just going to play a bit of audio. This is from one of your videos, Johnny. This is more just shooting, so it's a bit of noise of some gongs. It's your 6.5 mid-range plinking ticker T3 varmint video. So here's a little bit of a, I guess, sound of what sort of, you know, you can expect on Johnny's channel. So here you are now, Johnny. I'm actually shooting. There we go. And you're actually shooting one of these uh, red gongs. Here we go. Hit. A bit low. Yeah, very bit low. A bit low. We'll play a little bit more. Yeah. What are you waiting for? I think that's uh, your friend Elliot uh, talking there. Oof, that's more like perfect. It. That was a good shot right there. That was a good shot. Yeah, just playing my feet at that point. No, no, it's just a yeah. 6.5. Yeah, no, it's definitely... What do you like? We'll talk about the 6.5s, I guess, a bit later, but why did you want to start getting... That was a bit of audio from his YouTube channel, Point of Impact TV. Why did you want to start a YouTube channel? What sort of interested you in going, well, I want to start filming these hunts. I reckon it'd be awesome if we started filming. Well, I suppose I just um, it, I started uh, watching hunting videos in quite fairly fairly early days of um, hunting videos on YouTube. It sort of became a thing. I'd, I want to say about 2012. It seemed to start a few people started to make quite a few videos, and um, I just always fancied making a few myself because I enjoyed watching them. And you know, we're a little bit unsure about how it, how difficult it'd be to make them and stuff. And I just sort of went and had a little bit of a try and found out it's not too difficult really to make a you know a, a basic video and then you sort of like you do it quite a few times and you figure out a few things about how to edit videos about what kind of footage you need to capture and stuff and you just kind of you just kind of build up to sort of like making something that's moderately entertaining I suppose. When did you think how did you think like when you were getting into the long range stuff and varminting I mean, most of us, I got started in just your general hunting, you know, trying to you know, shoot 100 metres, sight in my rifle, and that was really about it. But when was it when you said, well, let's start trying to, you know, be humane and shoot these animals at long range for good ethical kills? Well, to be honest, um, I, I've just always craved range. From my air rifle days, I used to stretch those out as far as I could successfully shoot something in the head with it and kill it humanely. And then I sort of applied those 
sort of theories and knowledge to rim fires, and I were amazed with a two-two rim fire. I could shoot rabbits in the head every time at a hundred yards. I just thought this is amazing. And then I got a seventeen HMR and started doing the same thing, and I sort of pushed that out to like two hundred plus yards. I started getting into dialing the scope and everything, studies and the mill dots, and I was just amazed at what I could do with that. Shooting rabbits out two hundred and fifty yards was like a dream come true for me then. And when I progressed on to centre fire rifles and saw what some of the other guys were doing, I just thought, this is absolutely amazing. There's people shooting rabbits at 600 yards, and I couldn't believe it almost. I'm thinking, you know, how do they do that? You know, but centre fire rifles are a completely different league to everything else, aren't they? It's like, you know, it's amazing what you can do with them. So I've just been hooked ever since. And you don't ever get a wounded animal deer with a with a centre fire. You know, it's incredibly rare to wound a rabbit or something. That's great. Yeah, it's just crazy, isn't it, how we can stretch the legs of a centerfire rifle. And, you know, even when you're making these good shots, it's just like, wow, like, you know, the ballistics that goes into it, you know, making it all happen, good shooting technique. It's just, it's. I mean, how good is it? It's awesome. <laughs> every time, it's, it's so satisfying every time you make a good shot. You know, it never becomes boring. It never gets old. It's amazing, like, the complexity of making a shot that far. You just think, wow, that's amazing. Every every single time, it's a thrill. And I really like that aspect of it. People criticise me for like laughing and being happy on videos and stuff. And it's not that I'm some kind of sick, twisted killer and you know really enjoy watching things die. It's just the it's the it's the satisfaction from the culmination of a lot of practice, a lot of hard work, a lot of understanding ballistics. It's really exciting when you hit something. Yeah, no, it sure is. Guys, we're going to go a quick break again, and we'll be back with Johnny Osmore from Point of Impact TV, and we're going to talk more about long-range shooting. The new Zeiss Conquest V4 line of high-performance rifle scopes combines tried-and-true Zeiss optics with a rugged and functional design, providing high-definition glass. Enhanced with T-Star and low-to-tech protective lens coatings produces 90% to the eye-light transmission. This means excellent low-light performance and resolution across the entire magnification range. Zeiss Conquest V4 rifle scopes were designed as a lightweight, high-performance scope for demanding hunting and shooting applications. Visit O usaaustralia.com.au to find your local dealer. Zeiss, we make it visible. All right, Johnny, talk us about ballistic calculators. What are you using? What's your go-to? I know you're pretty much using uh, the Strelock app, but I've just gone to a Kestrel. Uh, I've upgraded to a bit of a Kestrel. Don't get to use it anywhere as much as I'd like to, but how can people get into shooting long range and what sort of ballistic calculators would be more suitable getting into it at that cheaper price range? Well, Strelock Pro, I think in the UK is about eight pounds or something, which in Aussie dollars is I don't know, probably about fifteen dollars maybe. I don't know what you guys pay for it over there. Strelock Pro is a great app, and it's it's great because you can use it just as a program itself, but you can have loads of add-ons and things like that as well if you if you want to later. But that's one of the most common questions I ever get. I always get what's the app. Sometimes I put little screenshots in of what of what the data is and stuff on on videos and. You know, like it's the first question people seem to want to ask. Well, after uh, what scope is that? That seems to be a really common common question. <laughs> I even think I've asked you uh, what scope is on that rifle. But one thing I want to talk about too, and I think it's a very, very important one for long-range shooting, and I guess I've suffered, um, you know, the fool's issue where I bought sort of a, a cheaper end rangefinder and 
I wasn't sure at times why I was shooting over, sometimes shooting under, especially after I'd done trajectory validation. Um, tell us about the importance of buying at least a decent to real, you know, exp- probably one of the things I'd probably spend more money on. I noticed when, you know, because the beam, the divergence beam on rangefinders on the cheaper ones is not the best. As soon as you get out to a fairly long distance, you know, you could be picking up a shrub or a bit of trees or, or a bit of grass in front of the target and inevitably you miss. So tell us about rangefinders that you're using and the importance of at least buying a decent rangefinder anyway. Well, like you said, the further you go out, the, the more difficult it is to, to range find and the, the better equipment you need to, to make those ranges. Um, but, you know, the, the main challenge, I've seen quite a lot of your videos where you're out hunting rabbits and you're having the issues with the range. It's it's often the lay of the land's the problem. And we don't have that much of a problem with that here because it's kind of up and down a little bit. I've got some pieces of land where it's very flat and getting a range off something that's flat is an absolute nightmare because, like you say, you don't know where the, you don't know where the beam's necessarily going. But I like the idea of using range finding binoculars because it's all in one that way, and it's less fuss, and you can you know you can really see what you're ranging very precisely. And I like to kind of almost triangulate and confirm the range. I'll you know I'll find some objects that I know that I can definitely get um, the beam to bounce off, and I'll sort of like go, does that make sense? That's 375 yards. How far is that fence? And, you know, I'll just sort of confirm it with um, other objects. I know that I can definitely get a good uh, a good reflection off. So um, it's important to have some decent um, decent kit, but it's also like you've got to try and use the surroundings a little bit as well if you can. And obviously if you've got nothing, you're just going to need a really expensive kit if you're just like shooting on a snooker table because it's, um, it's a nightmare shooting on really flat ground. I've, I've shot over and some footage on my channel shooting straight over the heads of rabbits, thinking they're at 500 yards and they're at 450 and stuff. So, yeah, I know what you mean. I, I, I felt that pain, mate. I know. It's crazy because I'm going to that property again in November, so I should hopefully, hopefully I should have some videos, but that's the problem with some parts of Australia because of the severe drought. Like those, I think they were probably 2017 videos I made. I mean, there were rabbits just everywhere. Like I, I had about, when I was on this open paddock, I had like literally in a half, 180 degree half circle, you know, what, rabbit warrens on my left and burrows to my 10 o'clock position, to my 12 o'clock, one o'clock position, to my two o'clock, to my four o'clock. Like there was just rabbits galore. But last year, because of the drought and not enough rain down where I'm from, there was just nothing down there. But you brought up a really good point about flat shooting. That, that particular area that I go to down there, even though some places there's like a little, I wouldn't even call it a hill, it just it goes up a little bit. It's so flat, so it's almost very difficult to actually lie down because when you're lying down, when it's so flat, you can't even see the rabbits. You've actually got to be up on the back of your car or on the back of the whatever you need or standing up or shooting from a tripod because otherwise you just can't see the rabbits. That's another real challenge in shooting, isn't it? Getting get a line of sight, that's really real challenge off a bipod. Man. Well, I do a, do a lot of my shooting off sticks when I'm walking around shooting rabbits because if I were to try and shoot them off a bipod, by the time I got into position to shoot them off a bipod, I'd have spooked them by then. So we have the opposite problem a lot of the time. You know, with the hills, we, we have to be able to just sort of take a shot from wherever. I got pretty good at standing shooting as a result, but I can stretch the range out quite a bit further with the sticks. So sticks are essential around here. 
So when you're shooting long range, I know you discussed some species earlier, but do you mainly, if you want to go long range, do you or medium to long range, you know, for varmint shooting, do you normally try and say, well, I'm always going out for rabbits, or what other species do you like and shoot long range that you actually get your hands on? Well, with the long range sort of thing, it's usually sort of rabbits, and then being a bit opportunistic with other things like. I've got some spots where I just I know that I can sort of rely on there being some rabbits out, and I know that you know crows are going to fly in, and uh, you know magpies and other things. There's going to be some things just sort of turn up, and um, that's what part of what makes the environment exciting, really. Because some of these birds won't give you all day to to do your day. You've got to be pretty quick with it. Usually, work work as a team. When I'm out with Elliot, we'll um, coordinate our efforts. One will be doing the uh, the wind and uh, range and everything, and, and and while the others sort of inputting the data into Stellock and dialing the scope and stuff, it makes it so much easier if you're working as a team. That's one of the main challenges actually of doing the um, the, the filming, because if um, if you're not doing it, if you're not coordinating like that, and one of one of you is having to set up the camera, or if you're on your own and you're having to set up the camera and do all that sort of stuff, it can be incredibly difficult to ca- capture the footage. And sometimes you end up filming the wrong rabbit. You know, if, you, if one person's doing the camera, one person's doing the gun, it's a real challenge to get all that right. <laughs> Imagine that. I think I did that one time too, like a couple of about a year and a half ago. I was I thought I had the right rabbit because there was two next to each other, but the other one was out of yeah. frame, and I ended up shooting. And I was like, oh no, this would have been great footage, but unfortunately, I screwed it up because I filmed the wrong rabbit. So. People don't appreciate the trials and tribulations that you, that you go through to make videos. Do they? They only see the satellite, the, you know, the cream off the top. They don't see all the rest of it that gets scrapped. I know it's so funny when you're making videos or even podcasts. What goes into, you know, making these and the editing? You know, all that people see is you know ten, twelve, fifteen, three minute video, whatever it may be. That's all they see, but they don't see the hours of, of, of like you know behind the scenes. I mean, they just listen to an hour. Like I interviewed you. I I've got questions I had to write up. We've had to arrange a time and you know get it all sorted, and then actually do the interview. Then the editing process, and then getting it up on the internet and do all the social media outlets i mean that's why i keep telling a lot of people you know jump on support these guys support these youtube channels support these podcasters and you know because you know what happens johnny and you've heard it probably a thousand times before too people talk about it and then all of a sudden hey oh johnny where did your videos go mate i haven't seen any videos from you for a while and people just think it's not worth it is it sometimes to all the effort that goes into it sometimes it's just not and it's costing it's costing you money as well yeah, definitely. You know, like it, it really is a lot of work. It's like people seem to think that we should just start, we're just going out and shoot and we should just do it anyway. And it's like it makes um, it makes it really difficult to to do what you're trying to do. It's almost it's a lot less fun when you're actually trying to film it because you've got you know loads of things, loads of other things going on, and then you, you know you've got like a long time editing depending on how you filmed it. I mean, sometimes it can take hours and hours and hours to edit something. And, um, you know, like it is really motivating when people support the channel. And, you know, I've had quite a lot of, um, I've had quite a lot of sort of companies support the channel. I've had, I wrote them all down yesterday in preparation for this interview. I've had like 12 different companies sort of, get, you know, provide things, provide prizes for competitions and stuff. And then I've recently, I've, I've had Patreon for ages, but I don't like asking people for money. So I've, um, I've not really done anything much with it, but recently I sort of like, 
put a few posts out about it and I've already got um, three patrons including yourself so thanks for that Jason it's uh, very very encouraging when people want to throw you a few dollars for ammunition and stuff you know it's it's not like we're ever going to make a living out of these kind of things but it's nice when people sort of like you know buy a box of ammo or something on Patreon it's really nice yeah, it's not not even about, as you said, not about doing it full time. I mean, that'd be nice, of course, if we could all be in the shooting sports and do what we love or the shooting industry and get paid for it. It'd be, be fantastic. But, you know, for me, I don't think it's about the money per se. I think for me, it's about the fact that people are willing to put money into something that they actually enjoy it that much. They're actually willing to throw a few of their hard-earned dollars, you know, at somebody and that's the telltale to me, how, how much important that is to someone else and the content, you know, me and you, are providing people actually resonates with people and people say, well, you know, even though I could probably listen to that show or watch that video for free, I'm actually going to throw the guy 10 bucks a month. I mean, what's $10 a month even from people? $120 a year to get fantastic regular content from somebody. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just, that's what we should be doing. And, you know, I hate when I see, and I've had so many good channels from not only in Australia, but overseas that they just stopped making videos because it wasn't worthwhile and i was like man these are great videos like it's so sad to lose something like that um from the industry and for people's enjoyment because they just didn't feel it was worthwhile anymore yeah definitely i'm not i'm not sure why the shooting industry is not getting more into um supporting people via youtube and stuff because if you ever go to um well it's the same problem in the states but in the states they have um there are videos that are more targeted towards shooters when you watch YouTube videos. When I watch YouTube videos over here, it's like adverts for random new albums that are coming out from singers and stuff. You know, like it seems like um, it, it seems like they're missing out on an opportunity to work more with the shooting community. They could be working with um, companies within the community and trying to look after the content creators that way. It's a real shame they don't do that. I mean, I think it's obviously we've just been playing ads throughout the show that you've heard too that we've got on the show, you know, but I mean, sometimes those are few and far between for, I mean, even for the amount of downloads I get, I've been doing this for uh, nine years, you know, and I've had a few people come on, but you know, a lot of people come on board over that time, but then there's still a lot of people that just don't see, which is sad. And maybe you might be able to tell me if that happens in uh, the UK, but they just don't see, you know, YouTubers being any value to, to their company or the importer that brings in firearms, you know, in, into the country, you know, and it's just really sad because I speak to a lot of big YouTubers in, you know, like the America and they're just like, they're throwing whole guns at people. They're throwing scopes at people. They're saying, well, man, if we want our product on your thing, bare minimum is you're providing that firearm and, and, and I keep that firearm and that maybe that means they might sell it on later on to make some money, whatever it may be. But I've just seen a lot of that from a lot of countries and from a lot of people that I speak to that, you know, yeah, America seems to be the anomaly and then of, of more people getting involved and more importers, more companies, yet around the world, it just doesn't seem to be resonating that, like, you know, social media is... And look how many views. I think I looked at one of yours, Johnny. I think it was the the 22 Rabbits long rifle. And, I mean, you got 130, 126,000 views on that video now. I've got one that's approaching half a million, another Rimfire one. You know, like, I think I've had, last time I checked, I'd had over 2 million views on the YouTube channel. That's got to count for something, you know, if I was trying to promote something. And I'd, I've seen the impact of um, my videos and the recommendations that I've made on calibers and stuff because the amount of people they get a one seven hornet and, and want to talk to me about it is incredible. You know, like it's um 
it's amazing like the influence that a small small YouTube channel can have on on, on uh, the way that people make decisions about the kind of firearms they buy and stuff. Absolutely, so, you know, right. we have got a lot of influence. And I think you're there's right. There's a lot of people who abuse that sort of thing. You know, there's a lot of people who abuse their influence. They'll sort of they'll, they'll flog any product to people if they if they're getting something for free. And I really can't bring myself to do that. The only companies that I've ever worked with have been companies that do products that. I really know, or you know, I've done my research. And I know they're good already, and then if it if it is good, I've I've been letting everybody know it's good, and if it's not, I've been quite quiet about it, really. Yeah, and that's the interesting part too. I run ads on my show, and I'm the same. I only like to run ads that of things I actually believe in. You know, like I, I mean, I, I don't own a Miracu now shotgun, but I'm I probably over my shooting career, I've owned three of them. Um, all different, all yeah. different uh, styles, and you know, I mean, I always, even now, I've got a, a competitor's shotgun. But even saying that, I mean, it's the, always the gun that I refer to people is like a Miracu MK70. All my friends have got them on my recommendation. I mean, for fifteen hundred dollars Australian, I said you'll have that gun for the rest of your life. There's no doubt about it. I mean, the only reason I'm I'm different is because sometimes I like that whippy style European shotgun, which I didn't actually think I'd enjoy, but. I mean, it's just crazy how we've all got... And I've also got a Zeiss Conquest as well on my um, 308 rifle as well, which I've had long before. I mean, I had... You know, I was advertising for Zeiss and OSA. So, you know, I just, you know, I just, I just get... I see a lot of people posting on the internet and, you know, making... Not say infomercials, but they might throw a product up and, and people are sort of giving him a lot of shit about it. And I'm like, man, the guy's, the guy's been making content for free for everyone for years. Like, I think he probably... <laughs> He, he's owed, you know, running a few products on his website to, or his or his YouTube channel to try and get a bit more money or to try to keep the videos going. So I don't really get upset when I see that sort of thing. I just think it's part and parcel. You know, people have got to make money. They've got to throw a few products. And if you get the numbers behind you and the businesses, I mean, as you said, I mean, 2 million views. I mean, you're, you've labelled your videos like Ticker Firearms and CZ and, you know, you've told people you're running some Hawk Scopes or some uh, Vortex vipers you know for an example i mean they really refuse to believe that people have watched that gone out and purchased products they've watched your videos so they're making they're making money on the back of youtubers as well so why not throw some money back into the industry exactly i mean going back to that question that i get the most most frequently what's cups that you know like the amount of people have asked me that i'm, I'm sure some of them are bound to have uh, made a decision about what scope they buy based on seeing them in use on my channel so you know it's only fair really if i got a few quid from hawk and a few quid from um, vortex really but t- to be honest actually I've, I've been sort of developing a little bit of a relationship with um vortex optics in the uk but i've just not really had time to make enough videos yet really so um that was sort of in development and um i've not really had a chance to, to do much about it really i've not really been making enough videos but the guy who runs um, the well, imports Vortex in the UK is an absolute, absolute star. That you know that no quibbles, um, returns on anything. You can drive over it and everything. I absolutely love Vortex for that reason. You know, I don't need to be paid to to recommend them, but you know, it'd be nice if I could build a relationship with them and trial some of the products and, and sort of inform people about it. Actually, that would be good. Well, you're 100 percent right, and I'll tell you one person that did buy 
scopes because of your videos was me, for an example, right? When I was shooting my 22, I got a new, the Ticker T1X. I wanted to put something on there just as a little quick, you know, varminting rifle if I want to shoot at, to say, 150 metres. So I needed a scope that had, you know, say, five mil dots. And I was looking around. I didn't want to spend too much. I don't want to dial the scope because on those cheaper scopes, I don't think the tracking is going to be all that good and it's not going to go back to zero. Uh, you know, I wanted something with five mil dots, maybe half hash increments, you know, and then use the Strelock app and then print out my dope chart. And, mate, there we go. Uh, Hawk Scope. You guys were using him in that video. And then I think I asked you what it was. And then I went and looked at it. And I was like, yeah, this looks okay. I mean, I've got a lot, a lot, enough money to buy something a lot more expensive. But I thought, well, what's the point? I mean, so long as I can hold over with that reticle and have five mil dots, I think the... I'm pretty sure I'm using the Ely high velocity. I mean, I'm getting out to 150 metres before the reticle's pretty much done out. But, you know, anything beyond that, and I'd be guessing. But for up to 150 metres or, like, 165 yards, I'm easily going to smash rabbits at those distances. Yeah, you can't beat a hawk scope for that kind of thing. You know, like they're just the right level of quality for, like, rimfire and air rifle work. And some of the top-end hawk scopes are pretty good on centre fires. I've shot out to 500 plus yards on my 243 with the Hawk Sidewinder. But, the, you know, the sort of top end of the Hawk scopes, they, they are pretty well made and, and they track very well. So, you know, like this is the sort of lower to sort of mid-end range that is absolutely perfect on air rifle. Those half mil dot reticles that you've got are fantastic. Johnny, I was just going. I was just thinking. Hawk aren't paying us to say good things about it. We should stop talking about. <laughs> oh, we're being honest. I mean, that's the main thing. I mean, like I said, guys, it all depends on how much you want to spend. But um, you know, I think it was on one of my Ticker T One X videos. I had the uh, what did I have on there? Like the the bipod. Um, what's the good bipod I got? I can't think offhand. But anyway, and he goes, "Well, your bipod's worth more than your." Atlas bipod I've got on there and he goes oh your Atlas bipod's worth more than your scope and I said yeah but I'm using that for a specific purpose of course I could put a thousand dollar scope on that no problem and I'd probably do that but why would I want to do that on a cheap little 22 that I can you know print out a dope chart stick it tape it to the stock and then get my rangefinder go out do a bit of varminting bang rangefinder you know 90 meters or 110 meters oh yep three and a half mils bang dead yeah, awesome. Works perfectly. Why you spend so much more? You don't need a scope that's going to outperform your gun. And, you know, your bipod, you can transfer to other rifles, can't you? It's not exactly fixed on there. You don't have to zero it when you, every time you move it around, do it. It's different. Yeah, absolutely. That's the best part of the Atlas. I put a couple of rails on all my guns. I can just switch up that Atlas bipod between guns. I mean, you know, I've got the the Ticker 243, the 260, the Superlight 308. I mean, it's just bloody fantastic. You know, you can't really go wrong. And why spend more money when I don't really need to? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'd cry if I bought an Atlas bipod because it's that expensive. But I suppose, you know, if you're going to buy one and use it on all your guns, then you know, it's a good investment. I'm sure I lost you a long time. Absolutely. Mate, I want to talk about something very interesting because in Australia, right, uh, our politicians think that suppressors are bad, you know, Hollywood, you know, everyone's going to be on a rooftop shooting someone and the, you know, a, a suppressor is, you know, going to turn every, everybody into a uh, sniper. So tell us about suppressors in the UK and more so because oh, it's good to talk to someone from the UK. Do farmers or landowners basically expect you to use a suppressor? Because I do talk about this a lot on the show, so I'd like to find out about that. Well, about, I think about 20 years ago, 
I was talking to a gamekeeper who's probably about 45, maybe, or so. And he was saying that when he started gamekeeping, like nobody had suppressors and they were illegal. But um, I think we got suppressors through the argument about hearing protection. And um, obviously it's a lot more, it's a lot friendlier to people living in the surrounding areas and stuff because quite a lot of our shooting is quite close to housing. I mean, we don't shoot towards houses, obviously, but, you know, like you, you might have some houses like a few hundred yards behind you or something. So, like, it is... It is almost a, you know, like it's just a general expectation in this country that you don't make any sort of like noises that are going to bother people if you can help it. So it's kind of like, you know, the police just assume that you're going to want a suppressor on your rifle. And, you know, like it's just like it's like getting a scope nearly apart from you have to you do have to have it on your license. But I think for the same reasons you were saying about in Australia, I think people were a little bit fearful about suppressors having seen them on films and it makes it sound like you know on films they make it seem like it's like a mouse fart when a gun goes off they don't don't, don't represent what what the reality of it is but um, I think I I can't believe there's anywhere in the world that doesn't have suppressors yet it's great to be able to shoot without hearing protection on and uh, or, or you know you know without risking injuring your hearing and you know like it's just so much so much friendlier to people in the surrounding areas that, you know, I don't know why anybody wouldn't have them. If you've got a license for a gun, why not give you a suppressor as well? It's crazy over here because often, you know, because of, you know, urban sprawl and stuff like that where, you know, we're getting more and more people coming into the country and me being in the biggest city in Australia, I mean, they always complain too. We get complaints from, you know, people that live around ranges. Oh, it's too noisy. Or they move to a certain area where there's a shooting range has been there for the better part of 50 or 60 years. And, you know, they're complaining. And we're like, okay, we'll give us suppressors. So they try and shut down ranges for noise or we're just copying a bollocking here at the moment. And it's just, what are we supposed to do? We don't want to give you suppressors. They're not really interested in the, well, protecting your hearing argument. They're just like, well, just stop shooting then. You know, they're not really accepting of that argument. But you never know, mate. Maybe one day we might get suppressors if our politicians actually stop thinking that these are some sort of death machine. I mean, people think, well, if you use a suppressor, the gun is... You know, it's it it's basically doesn't make any noise. I mean, that's just absurd. It still makes noise, and <laughs> you, you get a better no, you better get a better or lower report from the firearm, and you get some recoil benefits too. So, what's not to like about that? Exactly, it's crazy, mate. Let's talk about it. I want to talk about some interesting stuff about uh, sporter barrels versus heavy barrels. Now, um, I've got a bone to pick with you. Uh, do you still have your two four three? You take a T three light, or did you sell it, you bastard? <laughs> I've still, I've still got it. It's, uh, it's just been, um, it's been out on a few like deer hunting trips. I've whacked a few geese with it and stuff. It's just been a, a general sort of like, it's you know easy to carry round kind of rifle really because it's the T3 light, so it's, um, you know, it's a lot, a lot less uh, bulky than some of my other rifles. I really like it. I just, I don't do any environmenting with it anymore really. Have you noticed any differences in, say, sporter barrels versus heavy barrels when you're trying to, you know, work out like projectiles and stuff like that? Are you obviously the barrel heats up a lot more on a sporter barrel, for an example? But are you seeing? Is it? Are you finding the node easier to find, say, on a heavy barrel as opposed to a sporter barrel? Or are you seeing pretty pretty equal amounts? Uh, I'd say that you know, like you, you probably do get um, slightly small smaller groups in terms of like you know the bigger groups when you're doing your load testing there's less variation in the group size i would say 
But, you know, if you get everything right, you can get nearly any decent rifle and projectile and shoot one hole or near to one hole at 100 yards. Um, my T3 Lite used to shoot really, really tiny little bug hole groups with the 87 gram VMAX and Vargit powder. But the European Union, who are hopefully shortly to be leaving, um, they <laughs> yeah. banned certain chemicals. And uh, some of those chemicals are found in some of the Hodgson powders. So we can no longer get the Vargit, which is absolutely heartbreaking because, you know, that load was absolutely awesome. It had great velocity. It was like 3,250 feet per second or something out of a 22-inch barrel with um, about 9 feet per second uh, velocity spread and shot holes like that were like, you know, about 30 caliber sort of hole groups for three or four shots, you know. Yeah, it's but the, like you were saying about the different barrels, I find that you get point of impact shift with with thin barrels if you're going to shoot like a fairly fairly powerful round like a two four three. Um, I found that you know the hotter the barrel got, the sort of more erratic the shooting became. So um, that might have been a bedding issue or something, but I don't know. I think some barrels have a little bit of stress built into the steel that starts to you know become apparent when it warms up. That's my theory, anyway. <laughs> it's interesting because I wonder how that's going to affect it with Brexit and the European Union. I mean, I'm a fan of you know, country sovereignty, and I think I've read your posts, you are too, and I think this is a democratic assault on the people of the UK that three years later they still haven't you know, gotten out of the EU, and it's taken you know, people like, I guess, Nigel Farage to take over a bunch of European seats to, to, to wake up the Tory government to say, listen, well, we're going to be in big trouble here at the next election if we don't have a clean Brexit break by, what is it, October of this year? Yeah, I think, you know, like people people have been not doing anything for the last three years and then it's been delayed and delayed and um, it's looking like we won't get a delay this time, thankfully, because the EU are going to not give us any extensions to this leaving. So we either kind of get a deal sorted out by the end of October um, about trade and things like that, or we're gone, but um, without a deal, I don't think it's going to be anywhere near as bad as people trying to make out. I think people are just being a bit cowardly quite frankly about it the uk has been one of the one of the sort of most economically successful countries in the world since like forever since like after the romans left or something you know so uh, i think we'll be all right but the main the main advantage from the shoot for the shooting community in the uk is going to be that the eu likes to um they like to make laws that apply to all the eu countries about firearms so hopefully we will uh, get out of the way of all that sort of thing they've got rules about how you need to de- deactivate like deactivated firearms. They've got, I think they're trying to ban semi-automatic firearms now. Not that we can get very many semi-automatics, can only get um, two two rim fires. But um, you know, if if they are not involved, we've got less chance of uh, new firearms legislation coming out that's going to adversely affect the sport. So we need to get out quick before they make any more decisions. <laughs> well, hopefully they're going to bring you know Vargit back in, or you know once you're out of the EU, hopefully maybe that might open up and you know bring that back into the country because I know you guys were pretty unhappy when that that ban happened. Yeah, yeah, I've had to switch to using uh, Vitavori powders from uh, Finland. Um, they're they're really good powders, but I think there's certain powders that are just so easy to reload with. Like the thing about Vargit was that you got like. Um, like big group, big group, big group, tiny group, big group, big group. When you do your load development, if you got perfectly tuned, you know, if you get the perfect sort of, you know, within within like in about a 
a range of about a grain, you'd have like maybe two really tight groups, one to be tighter than the other. It was so easy. It was so obvious when you'd found the right powder charge with it. So I really miss Varget. <laughs> no worries. We're just going to get another quick break, guys. We'll be right back. Looking for outdoor equipment for your next adventure? At Aussie Outdoor Gear, you can find cooking equipment, camo clothing for kids, backpacks, camo accessories, and much more. We cater for your hunting, fishing, camping, hiking, and other outdoor pursuits with our unique product range. AussieOutdoorGear.com.au. Quality gear at affordable prices. All right, Johnny, tell us about, mate, your love of the 17 Hornet. Big fan? I am. I sort of love it and I hate it, really, because it's such a fantastic round. It's like it's like the the, the ultimate um, like bridging round between rim fires and centre fires. I've shot rabbits out to beyond 350 yards of mine and I narrowly missed a crow once at 500 and odd yards. It's a, it's, you can shoot targets. I've been shooting six-inch steel guns in like mild wind at 500 yards with it. It's an absolutely phenomenal little round for the size of it. It's like so economical in terms of the amount of powder that you need and um, it's it's like virtually no recoil. It's like a 2-2 recoil, really. And um, it's just a such a capable little round. It's so, what's really important here is because we're, re- we're not often very much in the wilderness. It's really important to have rounds that are very unlikely to ricochet anywhere. So like the frangibility of it's incredible. It just, just shatters into like a thousand pieces when it hits anything virtually. So it's been an incredibly useful round. It's just, the hate part comes in when it comes down to reloading for it. Those little necks, they need to be so precisely um, precisely formed and you need to, you know, a lot of attention to detail on the powder charges. They need to be absolutely perfect or, you know, you're going to get some kind of erratic performance. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're not going to stretch the range out too much. You can throw any old loads together and shoot under an inch. But if you want to shoot really precisely with like quarter-inch groups and shoot out to uh, three, four hundred yards. You know, it's really, really difficult to reload for it sometimes. So um, I love it and I hate it, really. Tell me, mate, at the moment, what's your favourite calibre to shoot? If you had to pick one right now, what would it be? For me, the best calibre, like, for vermin shooting just generally is uh, the 204 Ruger. I don't think it can be beaten. It's amazing. Um, Unbelievably flat shooting, fast. You can shoot that out to 600 yards with good accuracy, and um, it's just—it's quite light recoiling. It's like it performs virtually identically to a 22-250, but just with less recoil and a little bit less energy. So it's awesome. It's interesting. Well, I remember when you—I think I saw one of your videos when you were buying it. I was the Howard 1500 with uh, what heavy barrel GRS Berserk stock. I've got a fair few of them too on my rifles as well. Why did you settle on the 204? What was it that? Um, or two questions. Why did you settle on the 204? And why did you settle on the Howard 1500? Because you did have a few, I guess, tickers in your previous collection as well. You got still got now. So why did you settle on the Howard and the 204? I've got a real issue with ticker um, in that they. Um, the heavier barrels that they do, it's really difficult to get anything that's not 20 inches. A 20-inch barrel on a center fire just doesn't cut the mustard, really, especially if you're going out to long ranges. That's from a 6.5. is. So the Hauer was uh, a result of just wanting a 24-inch or, or greater barrel, um, as well as coming with a GRS stock. I bought it secondhand from some poor fellow who'd uh, he'd lost his driving license um, through uh, drink driving. 
And uh, as a result, he lost his firearms license, you know, any, any excuse to take your firearms license. So I bought it from this dealer for a really good price. I think I paid about £900 for the rifle and the GRS stock. And it's not been used much, and they're about, I don't know, £1,600 um, new. So, you know, I got a really good deal on it. Part of it, it just happened to come up, and I thought, I'll have a bit of that rifle. But um, <laughs> it, um, it's just uh, an absolutely phenomenal um, phenomenal little round. I, I, I love that whole combination, really. It's interesting because um, even the the tickers over here. I mean, I'm surprised they're only got them in. Well, they're only are they only shipping them over there in twenty inches? Because I just bought, well, probably in the last couple of years, I bought the two four three stainless varmint, which is not the super varmint version, and then I bought the two sixty in the varmint version, and they're all twenty four inch barrels. Is there issue barrel lengths over there, or they just weren't available at the time? Because I'm getting them over here. I think part of it's uneducated shooters, you know, like it, it's the, the the demand for it, you know, like it's probably that, you know, like they want a heavy barrel because it looks cool or whatever, but they don't want to carry around 24 inches of heavy barrel or something, you know, like a lot of people I see buying varmint barrels to go out foxing with and it's like if you're going out actively foxing, you want a lightweight barrel really. I mean, you can go and sort of call them in places, stationary and sort of shooting with a, with a varmint barrel. If you're going to get a varmint barrel, it should be a long barrel. What's the point in having a heavy barrel that you can't get the velocity out of it? It just doesn't make sense. Me and Elliot have talked about it many times. It's like, what the hell's the point? <laughs> it's interesting. I was looking at, oh, what was it? The Ticker CTR in a 20-inch barrel because, yeah, I guess it all depends on application. If you can sort of, you know, drive into a property you know, park your car, and then, you know, you're varminting maybe, say, 20 metres, even at probably a couple of hundred metres from your car, it's probably not too bad at all. But, you know, if you're, like, got a walk in Australia and you're walking for, like, kilometres and up big hills and, man, those heavy barrels are just not going to cut it. But I guess it all depends on application too. But I'm quite surprised people, <laughs> you know, I think 24 inches is probably the, the minimum. So if you want, like, you know, maximum performance from a cartridge, you're going to need at least 24 inches, aren't you? I struggle. I struggle to get about two thousand seven hundred feet per second out of um, out of a hundred and forty gram bullet in my six point five. I'd like to be able to get like two eight fifty or something, you know, with, with the right powder combinations and stuff. Twenty four or twenty six inch barrel should be able to do that. I have to get it rebarreled. I wanted to talk to you about that too, about you know the ballistic coefficiency of bullets and speed. Whereas you know, I'm not sure what specific um, powder. I've got. I use AR two two o nine in Australia because we make our own powders over here, and I'm surprised because AR two two o nine or two two o nine is a bit of a slower powder. But for my two four three and the two sixty, mate, it's just fantastic. I remember I was shooting the eighty seven grain Vmax out of the two four three with two two o eight, and I think two two o eight may be Vargat. I'm not one hundred percent sure, but um, it's fast. But I just couldn't get the accuracy out of it. As soon as I switched to the two two o nine. Oh mate, it was singing beautifully, and even the two sixty. I'm getting one forty three grain ELDX quarter inch groups, just above quarter inch groups at a hundred meters. I mean, do you worry about ballistic coefficiency of bullets and speed, or do you worry more about uh, accuracy as your number one priority? Well, I think so. So many of our videos recently, um, you know, you're saying that you know the, the the percentages are really marginal when you're talking about reducing your group size. If it's half an inch or less, then you know it's really good. But 
I think it's just an OCD thing from my point of view. If I can get one old group, I'm going to get a one old group. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. Um, in terms of ballistic coefficient, it's probably the biggest driving factor behind which bullet I'm going to choose. I mean, obviously the bullet has to shoot well in the rifle that I've got and it has to be appropriate for the twist rate and stuff. But I um, I do choose bullets based on the ballistic coefficient. So in my 204, I've got a 39-grain Sierra Blitz King. That's the highest BC bullet I've come across in the 204. In the 17 Hornet, I shoot the 25-grain Hornady VMAX, which is the best BC in in, um, in the 17 Cal department. I um, My 243 is a 1 in 10 twist, so I can't really shoot anything better than a than an 87 grain VMAX and lately I've just been using it with like you know like uh, lead nosed um, hunting bullets for, for deer and geese and things but um, the 6.5 by 55 I've um, I've been using the Sierra Game Kings because they've got pretty high BC I think it's like 0.500 and um, they're also like a, a, a lead nosed bullet which um, is uh, what my um, deer stalker friend prefers to be used on the land up there in Scotland so um, it's been a bit of a compromised bullet, but it's performed really well. Shot a deer on, and dropped it on the spot, 550 yards with those bullets. And I shoot targets with them, like, regularly to keep in practice. And, uh, you know, like all the bullets that I've sort of gone with, they've, they've all proven themselves, they've all been very good. I've tried other bullets and dropped them, like anything in the 243 that's that's less than the 87 grain VMAX in terms of BC and everything. Then I've only ever used that for like swatting geese at like 200 yards and stuff. You know, I sort of got rid of them by doing things at closer ranges, really, because the 87 grain VMAX is like the king of varmint bullets in that sort of um, in the six millimeter class. You know, if I were to build a a specific um, rifle for long range varmint, in, I'd probably get a two two four three Ackley improved with the 87 grain VMAX, something like a 26 inch barrel at be a force with that. I know, it's crazy. I remember, I might even go back to the 87 grain VMAX. I'm not 100% sure yet. I just noticed, like on the, and I could be wrong here, this is what I got told from a couple of people, that, I mean, my Sierra, the Sierra 70 grain Blitz Kings out of the 243 were just, like, they were just tack drivers. It's unbelievable. And I made a video, like, shooting out to about 430 yards in some crazy winds. Uh, and you know when when the wind actually died down, I mean I think 430 meters. It must have been. It was only a three shot group, but about an inch and a half, which is crazy. But those uh, ballistic coefficients, the 87 grain Vmax, are just crazy. But when I used to shoot a lot of the rabbits with the 70 grain Blitzking. And I probably don't want to sound morbid here, Johnny, but you know you like to see some visually pleasing video, right? <laughs> right. So with the eighty, <laughs> you like to know it's been hit, don't yeah, you? Exactly. And when you shoot the seventy grain blitzkin, don't get me wrong, fantastic bullet, no doubt about it. Just swatting rabbits like you wouldn't believe. But when it was just bang, flop, and hit, and I'm like. Should I go back to some maybe Hornady VMAX? And then I had a friend said, listen, the the jackets are apparently a bit harder. Cannot confirm or deny this, but the jackets are a little bit harder on the Sierras compared to the VMAX. And I thought, well, maybe I might switch over to the VMAX or go back to the 87 grain VMAX because I did buy a large uh, pack of 587 grain VMAX. But I want to see how well they go with that 2209 powder, which is a bit of a slower powder. But they do have that, I think it's 400 ballistic coefficiency, which is pretty good for a vomiting bullet it's absolutely outstanding and they've got the thinnest jackets ever i've shot eggs with them before 
and it's just been bits hit the paper behind him, you know, like and that's just shooting shooting at an egg. You know, like uh, it's pretty impressive. It's such a big, long bullet, quite high sectional density and stuff. But the uh, Sierras, yeah, they've definitely got a little bit thicker of a jacket because um, I've had uh, I've had some mixed results. I've had some that have like passed straight through a rabbit, and then I've had others that have blown a rabbit up in the two F R. So they're a bit. Um, sometimes they expand well. Sometimes they don't. But I've heard the same about Hornady V Max from friends. I've heard that you know the expansion's not always reliable. Yeah. I've never found that problem, but some people say so. It's interesting, isn't it? You have different bullet selections. <laughs> I don't know if you're like me, but I'm always trying to find the next best thing for some reason. Oh, I could, you know, I tried the 87s, then jump down to 70s, uh, and then I'll go, oh, I'll go back up to the 87s, and then maybe try something really light, like in the, you know, I think I might be able to go a 55 grain, but I'm not sure they're going to be able to stabilize those well enough in the one in 10 twist, possibly, but, you know, and then I contemplated speed versus you know, versus accuracy and, you know, is speed more important? I need to get more out of the rifle. But, you know, I mean, I guess if it's accurate, what am I really worrying about? I've got to, I've just got to stop chasing perfection. And you did mention that too, that video that I made that, you know, anything beyond a half an inch, like grouping at 100 yards for long range shooting, the, you know, the law of diminishing returns says that it's just, not, it's just not worth it. You're better off getting a good half inch group and then start your long range shooting because the, the percentages of anything lower than that's not really worthwhile chasing it and throwing money at it. Well, yeah, like a half inch group is a five inch group at a thousand yards. So, you know, like, uh, it's, um, you know, if you can, if you can shoot a five inch group at a thousand yards with it, you know, it's going to be your, uh, your wind data or your range data that's going to be the, the cause of your miss. Not the uh, or the temperature of your powder if you're going to shoot that far out. You know, it's not going to be the size of your group if you're half an inch or less. Yeah, absolutely. Mate, one more break. We'll go to a break and then we'll come right back. Would you like to advertise on one of the most tech-savvy mediums on the internet? Then why don't you advertise with us on the Australian Hunting Podcast? If you have a product or business that you would like to promote, then we would love to hear from you. Become one of our partner advertisers by calling Jason on 0425 881 967 or email australianhuntingpodcast at gmail.com. Mate, I want to also want to talk about the price of projectiles. Does that ever come into your factor? You know, as you know, projectiles aren't really getting any cheaper. Some of the higher brands are getting quite expensive. Does that affect your when you go to purchase something? Uh, whether that's a factor for you or no? Well, when you were talking about, you know, you're always looking for the next the next big product and stuff. I found that you know anything that's new seems to have a real premium price on it. So I'll try to. Um, I try to buy quite a lot in one go of things that I know already work well. And um, I'll try the new products and stuff, but unless it's, like, going to change my life, I'll probably avoid some of the latest, like, you know, like the Honor DLDX and things like that. I'll probably avoid things like that because, you know, they're sort of like one and a half times the price and you're not getting one and a half times the performance, really. I suppose, you know, it's all a case of what you're doing with it, really. If I was going to be regularly shooting deer at long range i might consider using the eldx but because you know most of my deer shooting you know inside of 300 yards and i don't shoot that many deer really probably probably shoot less than 10 a year um you know it's it's not worth me uh, investing the time and and throwing the lead down range to get everything set up it's the setup that's the problem 
like you could shoot gold bullets if you just had to shoot a bullet every time you shot a deer. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of those really, you know, like it's, it's all the preparation because, you know, you've got to make sure that you're shooting responsibly. And a lot of guys, won't, um, they won't entertain the idea of shooting a deer beyond 200 yards. But if you've put the time in and done the homework with, and, and thrown all that lead down range, then, you know, there's no reason why why you shouldn't if you know you can do it. If you can hit coke cans at 400 yards, you can you can kill a deer at 400 yards. It's um, you know, it's uh, a case of the bullet choice and the price factor is um, to be considered when he when it comes to just all the investment of time and and reloading and shooting them downrange to get everything set up. Really, I suppose. Yeah, I guess it's it's true, isn't it? It's, I, I tell a lot of people, it depends on how much you're shooting, and I guess sometimes even unless you've got a really lot of varmints on a property, for an example, like you know, you, you've probably done that too. You've gone to a property, you know, you shoot three or four varmints for a day, or maybe it's a bit of a slow day. Maybe you might shoot ten to fifteen on a weekend. Maybe I don't know. You might tell me in a minute. You might, you might shoot more than that, but it just really depends. I tell people if you're shooting longer ranges and you want better results, probably buy better bullets. If you're, as you said, if you're shooting, say, up to yeah, three, four hundred, even three to four hundred meters with a decent load out of a decent rifle. I mean, it's just going to work. There's no reason why you have to spend more money on the expensive stuff. But you know, I guess volume shooting. If you're shooting a lot, I mean, people were shooting like you know, a hundred, hundred and fifty varmints a week for an example. I mean, well, shit, you're probably going to go through a fair bit of money, you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I do. I use a lot, quite a lot in practice. You know, probably when I'm sort of leading up to going deer hunting somewhere. I'll probably shoot 50 a week at least. And, you know, you're talking like probably including, you know, like the powder and everything. I'm probably probably spending like one British pound every time I pull the trigger, you know, which is like probably well, about $1.80 or something in Australia maybe these days. Yeah, it's just crazy, so, uh, man. It's just crazy. I don't know what it? the exchange rate is at the moment. It used to be about two to one. You know, like it's even reloading, you know, like if using expensive projectiles and using a caliber that needs quite a bit of powder and stuff and using high quality brass that you're going to get so many firings out of and stuff, you know, it can be quite pricey. And you did a fair few reloading videos as well, so if people want to check that out, they can check it out on your page as well, which I guess reduces, you know, do you, re- when you're reloading actually, is yours more for accuracy like me or are you looking for the cost-saving benefits? Well, factory ammo costs probably twice, at least twice, what it costs me to reload any of my rifles. And I don't mind spending the time reloading because it's like my job's quite quite sort of intense, really, dealing with people as a science teacher. Like, um, I'd, it's nice to have something that just I don't have to think about. It's just like it's like working in a sweatshop. You know, it's like I'm just uh, just just doing the same procedure over and over again. I don't mind it. It sort of empties my mind. It's quite relaxing. But um, it's a combination of both, really. I mean, it makes it much more economical to shoot, and it also um, saves a lot of money. I mean, not saves a lot of money. It also makes it more accurate. I said that, didn't it? But um, you know, like it's it's a win-win, really. You can't lose from reloading, apart from the time aspect. And if you don't mind putting the time in, then you know everything else is great. I know. It's, I'm probably one of those weird people, man, that actually like. Yeah, reloading, I actually don't mind it. Some parts I get a bit annoyed about it. But, you know, when your hard work actually goes into a round and it actually works out for you. And and I've noticed with the powders over here, maybe it's the rifle, maybe it's the projectile, maybe it's a combination of everything. But pretty much every bullet I've thrown at my rifles, 
you know, I've found a good, like a very good sweet spot. I mean, I had some, I think on my 308, some 165 grain hollow point boat tails from Sierras. And I don't need that to be shooting crazy groups. I mean, it's shooting like 0. 0.6, 0. 0.5 and just, just over half an inch at a, at 100 meters. I mean, that's a perfect little deer hunting rifle for me. You know, walk around with it. Absolutely fantastic. But getting on to the next question, what do you look for when you're purchasing a rifle for long range varmint shooting? What are the specific things that the rifle's got to have for you to be able to want to pull the trigger on it, so to speak? No pun intended. Well, I find that like most um, most most rifles are pretty well made. To be honest, I mean, I know I've heard about people talking about rifles in the past and like you know a one inch group are like amazing at one time, but I think most rifle manufacturers make an accurate rifle these days. And in terms of in terms of like heavy or or, or sport or barrel, I mean it all depends on what. You, and if you're going to just do some like shooting rabbits in the UK, your barrel's never going to get that hot. If you're out in America and you're shooting gophers or prairie dogs, then you're probably going to definitely need a heavy barrel. But um, it's one of the main things, really, is getting an acceptable trigger. I'm looking at the Hauer and the Tikas that I've got. Their triggers are, um, when you wind them down to the sort of lowest uh, poundage you can get, the pretty acceptable triggers, really. Um, and my CZs, my Rimfires, and my um, 17 Hornet, you can play with the triggers and get those down to a reasonable weight. I don't need a trigger of ounces, but if I can get a trigger down to two pounds or so, I'm happy with that. Um, and uh, a decent stock helps if you're going to be doing a lot of static varmint and like the TRS stock. But I know you, you appreciate those as well over there. Um, you know, like it's good to have a, a nice stock so you, you know, like it's effortless to, to point the rifle that way. Yeah, no, you're 100 percent right. I agree with you, man. What about scopes? What are you What are you like in regards to scopes? Just for you know, I guess you know your rimfire shooting, your centerfire shooting. What do you generally look for in regards to what are the specs that a scope's got to have? What do you like? So, like um, a lot of people say that you're supposed to spend like at least twice what you spend on the rifle, and I'm not sure I agree with that. I think it's a horses for courses situation. So um, if you've got a rimfire, any like clear scope that's got that's going to hold zero, um, and uh, it's got a mil dot reticle, I think you sort of set there. Um, so with a two two rimfire, I usually have about a three to nine or higher scope. I need at least a three to nine um, to shoot out to say I shoot out to similar distances as you, like uh, 150 meters or thereabouts. Um, and on the 17HMR, because it's a bit flat of shooting, I shoot it a little bit further. I have um, a dialable scope on there, a little MTC Viper, a little Japanese-made scope that's not drastically expensive. The glass isn't brilliant, but the turrets track pretty well. So um, that's what that's uh, ended up with. And um, the, the center fires, if it's like, if you're hunting out to about, I don't know, four or 500 yards, Anything anything with at least 16 times magnification is probably going to cover you, but ideally you want about 24 times magnification. And then in terms of pounds um, that are spent on a scope, you're probably talking about at least 350 British pounds or so for a scope that's going to dial reliably. Um, and ideally you'd probably want to get a Vortex scope because about Vortex Viper because that's the main attribute that they've got. The tracking's really reliable. You know, there's better glass on the market. 
but most of the time I'm shooting in reasonable light conditions. I'm not trying to shoot deer at long range at dusk and dawn most of the time. So um, the vortex scope's pretty ideal, really. And, um, you know, if you want to shoot um, in lower light conditions with a cheaper scope, just get lo- lower magnification. I'll set the magnification a bit lower. I know, like, I, I couldn't... I, I, if, I, if I only had one or two guns, I'd probably have some really good scopes, but I've got, like... Got seven different rifles now. If I put a, a two thousand pound um, Schmidt and Bender on each one of those, then uh, <laughs> yeah. I won't be able to eat. <laughs> I know, man. That's the thing I decided on myself probably just recently too. Is I was like, buy more guns, buy more guns, put scopes on them, and then I thought to myself, I'd probably rather have a little bit less per se, and then try and put some you know better stuff on them. I mean, just that build I was talking about, like the two sixty Remington. I mean, you know, two thousand. Yeah, the rifle over here is like seventeen hundred dollars. You know, add a two and a half thousand or two thousand three hundred dollar scope on the top. You know, add the GRS Berserk stock, dies, brass, projectiles. Uh, what else did I put on there? Uh, APA little bastard muzzle brake because we can't have um, you know suppressors over here. I think I got the Contessa twenty MOA rail. I mean, that was a five thousand dollar purchase Australian. I mean, this is the sort of money, and it's not really. You know, it's not it's not low end sort of stuff, but it's definitely not not the super high end sort of stuff too. But and that seems to be a barrier to a lot of people getting into the sport. And you made a very good point that if you people want to get into the sport, you don't have to spend this sort of money. Start low. I mean, let's talk about that a little bit and getting people into the sport. Well, my philosophy on it is, I suppose, with, with being in the UK, you kind of like when you apply for your firearms license and stuff, you tell them what guns you're going to be using like over the next five years or whatever. And you can all, you can edit it later, but um, my philosophy is to buy the gun, and then you can always upgrade the scope later, or you can use um, you can use one scope on a few different rifles if you use different rifles at different times of year. Um, I don't I don't have um, a decent scope on well enough decent scopes for all of my rifles to get kind of rotated around a little bit. A lot of my rifles overlapping, you know what they do. But um, I suppose the main thing for anybody getting started out is um, maybe start with a two-two rimfire or something. You know, it's going to be a cheap rifle. You can get a cheap scope for it. You can get a cheap bipod because you're not dealing with a lot of recoil. Um, and you can learn the ballistics and everything and get, you know, get master shooting out to like decent-ish ranges with that first. And then and if, you, if you decide you really like it, you can get other calibers and, and get really seriously into the center fires and apply the same theories to it because ballistics is ballistics, whether it's a, a pea shooter or a, or an air rifle or, a, you know, it's like, you know, projectiles go up and down to get blown by the wind. You know, you can make adjustments with a scope for it. It's all the same thing, really. You can practice with a with a two two long rifle very easily and um, you can get into that for... Uh, in this country, you can probably get a two two long rifle with a scope and a suppressor and a bipod for maybe four or five hundred pounds, like a CZ. I absolutely love CZs, and I quite like them myself. So get a CZ, get a cheapish scope with mill dots, and get a bipod, and you're away, really. Do you generally? And I, I, I might have even got this from you, possibly. I can't even remember, but um, you know, do you generally like use the mill dots for your rimfire stuff and holding over, and then dialing for your centerfire, or do sometimes you use holdover and windage on your reticle for your centerfires as well? I tend to use um, the mill dots for the 2-2 rimfire because 
it's um, you know the, the trajectory is so loopy that you'd be dialing all day and losing track of where you dialed. So if you tried to dial for it, and um, you know, like it's you know, the wind um, at those shorter ranges that you're going to be operating a two two long rifle of, you can just kind of like get used to it and hold it. The thing about badminton is you want to be stationary somewhere if you're going to go if you're going to push the ranges on a rifle. Going to be fairly stationary because you can get used to what the wind's doing and you can spot your misses and make adjustments based on that. So I find that with the with the two two rim fire, it's just you know like it's so so loopy of a trajectory that the mill dots are absolutely perfect to compensate for that. Same with the air rifles and you know the the wind, you can sort of you, you get used to like over, over the day and if you're only aiming for headshots. You know, you're not going to really hit anything else if you if if you're shooting in wind. You know, it's going to blow off either side of the head, and you're not going to risk wounding anything. So that's my approach to rim fires. And then with the center fires, you just need that level of precision um, in terms of making your adjustments because a mill dot on a center fire might take you out to 350 yards or 400 yards, and you know nothing in between is zero. And yeah, and you know, <laughs> yeah. four hundred yards is a yeah, yeah. You know, it's like you'd be sort of like it'd be like playing a fretless guitar. You'd be trying to sort of guess where quarter of a quarter of a mil was or something, wouldn't you? On, on a on a reticle that didn't have enough subtensions. Exactly. I'm I'm actually surprised, honestly, how good just like, you know, a, a five mil dot, you know, holdover like those scopes were talking about previously, how well it actually works. And I remember I was on one of the properties, one of the private properties I've got access to, and like how actually good it really was, you know, just holding over three and a half mils. The Strelock was really accurate. And I was hitting like the rabbit sized gong that I've got, the steel gong at, you know, 150. Mate, bing, 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 no problem whatsoever. It's a really good way to shoot and i encourage people to get out and do it too yeah i suppose the price of ammunition in the two twos or the 22s as a lot of people call them it's fantastic i mean i can get it for um cheaper than get it because about six pence per per round in the, in the uk you can get it for about three american cents in, in some place in america you get some pretty cheap ammo and you can shoot it all day and it doesn't cost a fortune it's great isn't it yeah, absolutely. And I'm actually surprised as well. Like, I, I, it's notorious, and you probably, you might agree with me too here as well. Um, you know, like, I used to get really good results with, like, subsonic ammunition. I just found anything in high velocity generally wasn't really a good option for long-range, you know, sort of long-range rimfire shooting. But with that Ticker T1X, which I had some initial, you know, uh, teething issues with it at the start, it's like it's a, you know, pretty much, you know, half an inch group at 50 metres, with uh, the Ely high velocity, which never really worked before, and then the the CZ four five five tactical that I've got that's shooting the oh, I can't remember which one I'm, I just haven't got at the top of my head right now, but the higher velocity stuff in that twelve hundred to twelve fifty never really grouped for me before, but all of a sudden now it just wants to group for some reason. Yeah, I've had the same I've had the same experience as you in terms of like the high velocity stuff not wanting to shoot very well, and because we shoot suppressed. You know, like you don't really want that supersonic crack. So everything's pretty much subsonics in the UK, really. Um, well, you know, most people use subsonics, and I've always found I've always found the best accuracy and get out to reasonable ranges. I mean, the furthest rabbit I've ever shot, I think, is two hundred and two yards or something with a two-two. And um, you know, it's it's nice to be able to do it really quietly and pretty accurate. It's a shame, actually. My favourite ammo. I used to shoot the. Um, 
Ely, um, 40 grain hollow points in subsonic, and um, they've stopped making those for some reason. And I've not tried the replacement. They've replaced it with a 38 grain subsonic. But, you know, sometimes it just seems like your gun just absolutely sings with a certain round and it's not going to necessarily perform with the same round, with the same manufacturer's rounds or with the same sort of class around. It just happens to, you know, make really good friends with a certain round and it's really sad when they stop making them. I know. I wish they'd stop just doing that sometimes, like having a good po- – sometimes even when the popular products are, are quite popular with the, the shooting community, they discontinue them. It's like, why would you do that? But uh, surprisingly, interesting question. Uh, you're talking about the crack of the 22 and the high velocity, but you guys have got suppressors. Is that not really an issue then when you're sort of shooting those 22s with suppressors, not as bad with the high velocity stuff? Well, it, it is a little bit It is a little bit quieter, but it's um... – you know, like the the initial sort of boom from the muzzles are uh, significantly like reduced, well, reduced to nothing really. It's very little powder being burned and stuff, but the bullet itself creates its own sound wave as it sort of like bashes the air particles at supersonic speeds, and it sounds like a you know crack of crack of lightning, crack of thunder. So like you know, like it sounds like you're almost shooting a a small centre fire, even though you're shooting kind of a fairly puny round, really. You know, it sounds like you know, it sounds like I'm shooting my one seven Hornet with a suppressor on, almost, and it's not really worth the noise that it makes the performance. You know. Yeah, I agree. Probably right. Yeah, be interesting to find that out. I mean, yeah, we can't have suppressors, so I'm pretty, I'm pretty jealous, Johnny. That's for sure, mate. What have you got? A couple <laughs> more questions before we finish off, mate. Um, what have you got? Any purchases coming up? Anything in mind that you want to purchase? You know, uh, rifles, scopes. Have you got anything on your list that you you want to sort of pick up that you got your eye on? Well, I suppose the next sort of uh, next thing for me is going to be to sort of upgrade some of the equipment that I've already got. So. I'd like to get some. Um, I'd like to get some rifles rebarreled. You know, like so I can get the perfect barrel that I want for for the rifles. I don't think I need any more different calibers. I've got something for everything in the UK, really. I won't mind getting my 6.5 by 55 rebarreled, so I've got a bit longer of a barrel. Maybe get Ackley improved, or maybe get it um, chambered in 6.5 by 284 Norma or something that I can get like 2,900 feet per second or something from. That'd be a real uh, long-distance anything stopper at that point, and uh, I'm not not sure about my other ones really. I don't know. I think my two four three is going to kind of like sit around as my light carry gun. My two or four Ruger, I'll probably just keep shooting that until it starts losing accuracy. Maybe get get that rebarreled at some stage, and uh, I don't know about. Um, this may be a chance that I might try the. Two two Magnum um, in the CZ four five five. I might get a see if I can get a barrel for my um, CZ four five five because you can switch those out. But I don't really have anything that I really want to buy rifle wise. Just maybe upgrading. I do really want a pair of the Vortex range finding binoculars because you know how good would that be? You've got range finding binoculars that perform really well, and if you drop them, you know you get a new pair. It's great. Like it's, it, the worst thing about all the fancy products that we've got now is that it's such an investment of money that if you break it and you know you can't you can't get returns or anything, it's like you know you've lost thousands of pounds. So um, yeah, I suppose I really do fancy a pair of those and maybe upgrading some rifles, I suppose. 
Yeah. How about you? Have you got any product? Have you got any products that you're uh, looking at? Any rifles that you're tossing <sighs> at the moment? Interestingly enough, I, yeah, because I've seen you the two hundred four. I am tossing up. And I'm probably it won't be my first purchase of what like my next rifle, but I was looking at like you what you got two oh four. Um I was looking at twenty two two fifty as well. I th- I think's interesting as well. But because and this is the one reason why a lot of people ask me why like choose two four three, because years ago I probably would have put a fair amount of shit on the two four three, you know, too big for small game and too small for big game sort of deal. But you know, I really do like that. But the benefit of those rifles, even in the six point fives as well, is they and the 308 is they all work off the 308 case. So if I want to, you know, change the 243 one day to 22250, well, I can do that if that was what I wanted to do. So I'm looking at 204, 250. I'd love a, a really big banger, so maybe like a long-range shooting. I don't want to get anything too expensive because then it becomes way too expensive to shoot and too much recoil. But maybe a 300 Wim Mag or a 300 Winchester Short Mag. I'm not sure yet. Maybe that's something that can get out to that you know, really good, you know, one kilometre and really hit sort of a lot harder than the 260. But not really, man. I've got a couple of 22s. I want to look at another shotgun maybe, maybe like a straight pull over here because, you know, most of our guns are banned over here. We can't, you know, have a lot of the, even rimfire semi-automatics we can't have. We can't have suppressors. It's just, you know, I mean, even what you guys go through over there and the tough, tough controls you've got, you know, over there's a lot better than me. But um, one question I did want to ask too, if you were buying guns, do you have any caliber limits over there? Like if you want to go higher than 300 Wim Mag or something or 338 Lapur or any big calibers like that, do they limit you how high you can go? Well, it's all a case of being able to, like, convince them that you need it for a purpose and it's appropriate, really. It's like we've got what's called a qualified right to own firearms, which means we've got to kind of make up excuses well, not excuses, but we've got to... <laughs> legitimate give, give legitimate reasons. reasons. <laughs> so if you can... I've, I've heard about a guy getting a 338 Lapua Magnum to shoot deer, and he's, he, he put together an argument for um, you know the fact that he couldn't get close enough to them and they were causing a lot of damage to some trees and things like that, and somehow managed to um, managed to get a 338 Lapua Magnum for that. But, um, you know, and they've got, like, guidelines about what kind of calibers you should be shooting different things with. So like um my two four threes kinda like for deer and foxes, my six point five by fifty five saw larger deer. Um my other guns are pretty much for you know, vermin and foxes. Um, you know, it's like uh about to sort of put together some reasons for each firearm. Like and I've got two 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 long rifles. I've got a Ruger ten twenty two and a C Z four five five. I had to give different reasons for why I needed two of the same caliber uh, night shooting and the other one for day shooting so that I could have like a night optic on one of them. I mean, I don't always do it like that, but sometimes one of them will have a night optic on for, for a few months. And, you know, it's like a case of you just got to be able to justify why you want everything. You can't just buy what you want in the UK, which is kind of sad. Um, if I wanted to get something bigger than I've already got, I might have to get into wild ball shooting and go pay to do some wild ball shooting trips and. You know, maybe then if I get a 300 win mag or something like that, something with a bit of knockdown power, because them pigs are tough. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes here, there's depending on what state you're from too, sometimes they do 
ask you that as well. Like we call it the genuine need test about why you want it. But normally, yeah. normally they don't unless you've got like a really lot of rifles. They generally don't ask, but they do because some of we have some range restrictions over here. So like there's certain foot poundage that you can't exceed depending on where where the range is located. So three through eight Lapua, they yeah, they're not depending on what state you're from. They're not really keen. I mean, I can own a fifty a fifty cal Barrett in New South Wales, but the problem is you can't yeah. shoot it. You can't shoot it on any range. So so you have to have access to private land, and they probably want to ask more questions. I mean, 300 WIM mag, uh, 300 WSM, no problem off the shelf. Like, they won't ask any questions, really. Again, depending on your state. Maybe if you had six of them, they might ask, well, why do you want seven of them, you know? But uh, generally, those calibers aren't a problem. You know, they're heavy. You know, we, we can shoot buffalo up in, you know, northern uh, Australia, you know. So you've you got the bigger calibers. Again, 300 Remington Ultra mag. I mean, all these other calibers too that I can't even think and list at the time. But yeah, if if you get stuff, some reason anything that says Lapua in it, <laughs> Lapua, they, they don't they don't like it, man. You know, like you can have similar rifles that are a bit more, you know, maybe not as popular or not not anywhere near as popular, and they don't ask any questions. But as soon as it's uh, three three at Lapua, like oh, that's hang on, that's Lapua in there. We don't like the sound of that. You know, it's kind of funny. You so. can get- Almost anything for target shooting in the UK. You can get, you know, you can get a fifty cal or something, no problem. But it's just trying to get it in the field that's difficult, and you've got to prove that you've you've got land um, that's suitable to shoot it on, or that you've got adequate experience to decide that that land is suitable. So that you know, like you can either get what's called, um, they will call it a closed license and an open license. That's not the official terminology, but initially you get granted a license that says that you can only shoot. Um, calibers on land deemed suitable by the chief of police. It's not the actual chief of police who goes and looks, but somebody does it on the chief of police's behalf. And um, until that point, you can only shoot on certain pieces of land. And then, you know, when you get to the point where you get the you get the condition that you get to decide whether you could be suitable to shoot it or not, then you know you could shoot things in your back garden with a six point five if you were, if you could justify it. You know, not that anybody does that. Interesting. Last question, mate, before we finish off, you just brought another one up to my mind. What's it like? I mean, we're seeing an increase, you know, a lot of, I mean, even though in my state, we've got a lot of public land hunting. Some other states in Australia don't have public land hunting, so it's only private land stuff. What are the farmers like over there? We've seen an increase in poaching over here, which is sort of turning, you know, a lot of farmers off from getting access or permission to their private property to go shooting. So is there a, a, a farmers over there, are they reasonable? Is it hard to find a place to get on? What's the sort of situation with the private land? It's really, really difficult to find anywhere. So we don't really have any public land, really. You just got to knock on enough farmers' doors. You know, like I've probably like spoken to at least fifty landowners in my time, and then as a result, I've probably you know gained about I don't know maybe eight pieces of land. So like you know, and not big pieces of land. Often these pieces of land are like neighbouring bits of land. So like I've done a bit of name dropping, saying oh, I shoot for so and so over there. If you're out to shoot rabbits on your land as well, and um, it's been really quite difficult because farmers seem to be over here. They seem to be like very distrusting, maybe not really people, 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 and or they're really friendly. And if they are really friendly and outgoing and just glad to see somebody in quite a quiet rural area, then chances are they've already had somebody come talk to them and, and they've already got permission to shoot on the land. And you know, like it's a, it's a real, real nightmare. And on top of all that, quite a lot of land, the shooting the shooting rights are controlled by large estates. 
So there's a, a big estate near me, and they've got like 18,000 acres of um, land around around an area where I go shooting, and I can't really advance any further in that direction because the the landowners don't have any say over who shoots on the land. Um, it's just um, it's all managed by the local estate, so and that'd be really difficult to get onto because they have gamekeepers that do all the vermin control and everything. So it's just difficult depending on where you live. But you know, if you sort of try hard enough and put the put the work in, you get places to shoot. Yeah, well, you guys have got great channels, man. There's another guy I watch too. You know, Mark from um, Two Sixty Rips. I like watching him too, man. Oh, yeah. He's got some great content too. So, yeah, some good stuff coming out of the UK, man. You know, like they they love their shooting like we do. I mean, it's it's like I said, mate. It's universal, isn't it? Yeah, um, um, Mark from Two Sixty Rips has got some absolutely awesome ones. I think he does a bit of sort of like uh, the pest control work on the side, so. You make a lot of good connections that way. I would have thought probably shoots pigeons in bounds with his air rifle and then gets like, you know, some epic uh, rabbit shooting out of it. It's um, it's good if you can sort of like get find a way in that's not like, you know, just turning up on someone's doorstep and asking him. It's nice to, you know, dip your toes a little bit first before. Um, so, you know, I'm really jealous of his one. He's a really good lad, though, is, uh, is Mark. He's uh, really sound. I've, I've had him write an article for me a while, a while back and, had a few phone conversations with him. He really knows what he's doing. He's got some really good land. I've been a big fan of his, but he doesn't seem to be making too many videos these days. Yeah, I know. It's the whole thing is just sad, really. That people, you know, I mean, I guess they might be busy for whatever reason, but you know, like I said, you know, you know, it's a lot of work. But Johnny, before we finish off, you posted a Instagram. Now you know where I'm probably going with this. Yesterday. <laughs> saying you had your Aussie accent, guys. He posted a video on Instagram in, you know, pending this interview. So, guys, this is Johnny's um, idea of the Australian accent. Let us know what you think. Here it is. Good day, guys. Just wanted to <laughs> let you know I'm going to be uh, giving an interview tomorrow with the Australian Hunting Podcast. So uh, subscribe to their channel and uh, be sure to check it out. <laughs> what do you think? What do you, what do you rate it out of 10, Johnny? What do you reckon? We're going to get a lot of hate mail now, aren't we? Um, <laughs> it's not as ba- actually, I, uh, you know what? It's not as bad as I thought. It was actually pretty good, actually. I was surprisingly, um, you know, how good it was. Not perfect, but, you know, not too bad, mate. Not too bad. I'd say that, um, you know, parts of it are pretty spot on. Like, anybody can say, good eye, mate. That's pretty, <laughs> pretty, pretty easy to do. But um, when it comes to saying things, you've got to, like, when you're trying to copy an accent, you've got to sort of, like, really analyse the little nuances of how people say things. and. You know, it's not quite right. I'd say the end and the and the start are better than the middle. But um, I used to be quite good at it as a kid. I used to, when about 11, I used to do all sorts of accents like Jamaican, Scottish, Irish, all sorts of things. So I thought I'd have a go just for a laugh. Absolutely, mate. Tell us where can people find you. I guess you're on Patreon, so tell us about that. Tell us about where they can find you on YouTube or Instagram, all the social media accounts and all that good stuff. So, um can find us in lots of different places really so we've got the point of impact tv youtube channel i've got um point of impact tv on instagram i've got um this uh point of Im- point of impact tv i think it's down as on patreon and uh we've got a facebook page um which is down as poi point of impact so call it poi for short we've got um all the POI groups. We've got like groups on long range rimfire shooting. We've got groups on centre fire rifles. We've got 
air rifles. We've got a group on vermin shooting. We've got a predator hunting specific group, a deer hunting group. We've got a reloading group. We've got a long range precision group. We've got so many groups and quite a lot of members. I think we've got about 80,000 members total on the Facebook group. So there's always plenty of discussion on there. You can reach me on there or you, know, you can talk to some of our really experienced members if you want to find anything out. You know, it's a world of information these days and we're all over it at the moment. Just need to get out and shoot more and make some more videos for everybody. Yeah, mate, any final advice to finish off to listeners, to people that might be listening to this from the UK when, you know, you let them know you've been on a podcast from Australia? Any final advice you'd like to give? Um, well, best piece of advice that I'd say uh, has come out of this discussion is that everybody needs a 204 Ruger in the life. <laughs> Damn right they do. All right, Johnny, thanks for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate it. Johnny Ellsmore representing Point of Impact TV, mate. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, I really appreciate it. We'll catch up soon. Thanks, mate. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to an episode of the Australian Hunting Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. See you next time. Thank you.